Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. I'm Andrew Montessi and joining me is AFL legend Warren Treadray. And Treaders, when it comes to big deals in sport, today's guest knows the ins and outs as well as anyone in the world. He certainly does, Monty. Well, we're very lucky to have John Cosner coming to us from New York. Well, John is an internet pioneer and for the past four decades has been a veteran of sports media. Today, he's an investor and advisor in sport tech startups and president of Cosner Media, a digital media and sports consultancy company. In 2018, John created Micromanagement Ventures with the late NBA commissioner, David Stern, when which is a portfolio of sports technology startups. John continues to serve as an advisor and investor in nine of the original portfolio companies, which include Whoop, WSC Sports and Overtime. John is also an advisor to 890 Fifth Avenue Partners Incorporated, which took BuzzFeed public in 2021, as well as Apple News, the NCAA and Big East and Sport Radar, among many others. Previously, John led digital media at ESPN from 2003 to 2017, building it into the world-leading destination for sports online. Prior to that, he built his career at the NBA, where he was in charge of US broadcasting during the Dream Team era, CBS Sports and NBC Sports. Believe it or not, that's just the short version of what John's been up to. John, it's an honor to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Warren. You can do my intro anytime. So as you went through, I have a variety of experience, all in all in sports media, and I grew up in New York City. This is where I live today. Since leaving ESPN in the summer of 2017, I spend a lot of my time in conversations like this one. You know, as as, as you noted, um, I'm an investor and advisor in sports tech startups. The number of companies is up to 16 now. Um, I also uh, consult with the LA 28 Olympics, with Apple for Apple News, and with a um, software, um, cloud software company called Snowflake. And besides that, I do some writing for the Sports Business Journal, which is one of the industry trades. And frankly, I spend a lot of my time meeting with different people in sports, both US and, and internationally, to keep up with what's going on and to get their thoughts on companies, leagues, etc. So it's a wide variety, very different from being in a big corporate job, but very, very fulfilling, at least at this stage of my career. So maybe let's go right back to the beginning. How did you first get involved in sport, John? So I grew up here in New York City, and I'm one of the few people you'd ever meet who got to do exactly what he dreamed to do when he was growing up. So I was always interested in sports and specifically sports on television. From an early age, I could tell you the the differences in coverage among the TV networks in the US, the way they did scheduling 
and um, I read Sports Illustrated magazine cover to cover. And when I was a high school senior, I got a, I got a position, an internship at NBC Sports in, um, this was summer of 1978. And I was able to intern for NBC all through college. And so when I got out of college, I had actual work experience and I started working at CBS Sports. I'm a lifelong basketball fan, lifelong NBA fan. And when I joined CBS in 1982, CBS had the NBA rights, but it was a different league in those days, much less popular, much less popular at CBS than some of the other properties they had. And it was one of those career lessons I learned is even if even though you were even though one could be young, if you were energetic and could get stuff done for an important client, in this case, the NBA, people noticed. And I was able to parlay that five years later to actually getting to work at the NBA. I was a director of broadcasting beginning in 1987. And as, as you mentioned, I was there for the Dream Team era. So if you guys watch the Michael Jordan documentary, I was at most of those games. And to be in charge of broadcasting for a sport you love is just, is, is, it, it, it was really a, really a dream come true. I worked for David Stern, the legendary NBA commissioner during that period of time. And I did eight seasons before going to Sports Illustrated, which again was, you know, a sort of dream assignment. Only lasted at Sports Illustrated for about a year and a half because we had created a television unit there that was an abject disaster. Um, I don't recommend, I don't recommend, uh, you know, career failures, but you do wind up learning from them. Luckily, after I left Sports Illustrated, David Stern called Steve Bornstein, who was then the president of ESPN, and I wound up getting a job at ESPN in TV programming. I've always been fascinated by that sort of intersection of sports media and technology. And when I joined ESPN, ESPN.com was only two years old at that time. So this was 1997. And I cold called the leadership of the website. It was a JV in those days between ESPN and Paul Allen, who had a company called Starway. Paul Allen is the late owner of the Trailblazers and the Seattle Seahawks in the U.S. And I started doing work for the folks at ESPN.com. And, and then I joined there as head of business development in 1999. The early days of the Internet were, kind of remind me of the early days of crypto and what we're dealing with now. It, it was very, very hard to get your arms around exactly what the business was. We frequently seem to be going out of business. But uh, I just loved the uh, the 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 capability and the potential of the of the Internet. By 2003, I was named the general manager of ESPN.com. It was speculated that that was a booby prize because we were losing so much money. But <laughs> in 2003, all of a sudden, advertising began to come to the Internet. And most of my career, the 15 years after that, were a story of growth and getting to work with brilliant people and lots of innovation. And um, as I mentioned before we got on the call, one of my proudest uh, achievements was at the end, we had launched 12 different versions of the website and ESPN app, including one in Australia. Just real quick, I, I left ESPN in the summer of, 
of um, 2017, after 20 plus years, and the first person who called me when my news was public was David Stern, who had just retired as NBA commissioner after 30 years. David had become an investor and advisor in sports tech startups, and he suggested that I should join him for that. And when my deal with ESPN was up, we started doing work together and we named our effort Micromanagement Ventures, which if you knew David, you'd appreciate, you know, and the, the fun work of being with David was everybody seemed to be in on the joke because David invested, but he would he'd never look at a spreadsheet, never read a deck. He, you know, he was just he, he just was intuitively a crazy bright guy. And we worked together for two years before David sadly had a cerebral hemorrhage. He uh, passed away on New Year's Day 2020. And um, since his death, I have stayed involved with the little companies, most of the little companies that we were involved with, and then added others of a similar profile in media, player health, and betting, and supplemented it with, um, with consulting assignments. So I, um, I get to stay in the middle of an industry that I'm super interested in, focusing really on what's coming next, which I think is the unique place that you want to be if you're a consultant because you have time to look and study things that are coming. The last thing I'd say is that, and I, and I mentioned this for people in the, embarking on their own careers, is what I'm most known for in my career didn't exist when I was growing up. It didn't exist when I was in college. It didn't exist halfway through my career. And the pace of change is only accelerating now. So for those who are working, working in sports, if the opportunity hasn't, ha- hasn't arrived yet, it, it doesn't mean it won't. It just, just can come a little later. You mentioned you were the VP of broadcasting with the NBA back in the 80s and 90s. Can you take us through that iconic time and, and how that was for you adapting to... We, we look at the, the dream team. We, we sat from afar. We see a few... Um, documentaries now on paper uh, TV. It was just an unbelievable time to be involved. In business, when you can when you can get involved with growth enterprises, that's really that's really when it's the best. And I always loved pro basketball, but you know the NBA labored under a lot of challenges. Some of them were self inflicted. There was a drug problem. There was concern at the time that. The sport was too dominated by black players and a predominantly white audience wouldn't be interested in them. We, we labored under all these things. David used to say to me that our fans like us, but they didn't like themselves for liking us. And what happened in those years was the, you know, David's vision and the realization that as we worked together with the players to make the product better and better, that it really could find an audience. And, um, you know, when I started, uh, when I started, we televised 30% of the playoff games on national TV. And I asked, I said, the playoff games are our best product. Why don't we put more of them on? And it wasn't clear that there'd be an audience for that. But of course, today, you you take it as second nature that you can watch all the games. That started in those days. The NBA draft, where college and international players get selected to come into the league, was held on a weekday afternoon. And we, we said, well, why don't we 
put it into prime time when more people could see it. There are so many things like that that were possible that for whatever reason hadn't been done. I wouldn't describe us as rocket scientists, but we we're able to, to do a bunch of those things. And then sometimes you can be good and lucky. And lucky came in the form of Michael Jordan. I mean, there are lots of great players who were playing in the league when I joined, including Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. But it was the ascension of Michael Jordan that, and the combination that really took everything to, to a new level. I think it was the spring of 1989, uh, the Cavaliers, who had the best, who had the best, um, the best um, seed in the Eastern Conference, were playing the Bulls with Michael Jordan. Michael was in his, I think his 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 third or fourth season, and the the first round of the playoffs was best of five games, and the Bulls won that series on a legendary shot by Michael Jordan. That's in the documentary over Craig Elo, and he he hit it. He hit the shot at like around six fourteen p.m. Eastern time. And it was dinner time on a Sunday night across the entire country. And it was a spectacular performance. And similar to Muhammad Ali when I was growing up, similar to Tiger Woods, Michael got people who didn't care about basketball to watch. He was that crossover, that sort of transcendent athlete. And I think we were all wise enough to understand what we had. So the dream team flowed off that. And, you know, I would ask you guys, you know, being in Australia, our perspective was when the NBA players played in the Olympics, that all of a sudden it just opened the world to pro basketball. You mentioned the the Jordan factor when obviously he's burst onto the scene and you know that there's something special. Could you have imagined how big the NBA would get from a brand, from a media perspective? Were you able to grasp that at the time, do you think? I thought that we could do a much better job of presenting the sport on television, sharing that kind of excitement that we felt. A galvanizing moment was in um, 1989 when, when we moved the television rights, the national television rights from CBS Sports, where I had worked before, to NBC Sports, because... Dick Ebersole, who was the president of NBC Sports, was also a huge NBA fan. And that the, so to have the president of a TV network who was also essentially serving as the head of programming executive producer, so into the sport himself. You know, Dick's also the guy, the sort of modern TV executive in charge of the U.S. Olympic coverage, sort of taking over from Rune Arledge who was a TV legend in, in our country. So a bunch of the things that we imagined became possible with Dick. You know, So for instance, we began to have actual pregame shows. Uh, we, we did features on the players. There was a TV program called NBA Inside Stuff that was targeted at, at teenagers that aired on Saturday mornings. All of, all of that built interest in the league and you had Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and Carl Malone and any number of outstanding players. So we thought it was possible, but it was really David Stern's vision. It was the brilliant people that he assembled, the connection to television. And 
it's funny, we think about the NBA now in the same discussion with the NFL and the EPL and other great leagues around the world, but that's really the you know a phenomenon of the past 30 years. It wasn't always that, wasn't always that way. One of the lessons I've had just in my career is that sports is a galvanizing activity and it's actually more similar around the world than it is different. The fans that gather for AFL games in you know in Australia, uh, we could talk a little bit about cricket as well. You know that kind of passion and interest is mir- is mirrored all over the world, and in an increasingly polarized world, it's it's perhaps the only thing that still unites people. Absolutely, absolutely does. Um, can you take us through your micromanagement ventures and the late and legendary NBA commissioner David Stern? Obviously, an icon, as you touched on already, his importance to the game and his role in terms of rebranding the NBA in terms of a, and now access all areas, so to speak. What did you learn from him? David originally was a uh, you know you know you know, a litigator from Proskauer, which is one of the top law firms in the U.S. His dad owned a delicatessen in New York City. So among other things, David, who is considered the best of the commissioners and one of the one of the fathers of sports marketing, he taught himself everything. That includes getting feedback from, you know, from all the talented people that he hired. But he didn't have any background in any of this. You know, he had to learn it all. So this idea that this idea that work ethic, vision, he outworked everybody. It was legendary. You know, he would come by, he'd walk by our office, you know, like six thirty, seven o'clock. He'd look at us and he'd say, you know, we were packing up. He'd say, oh, half day for you. And, you know, he, he'd, uh, he'd be in his office early and then late. We had, we, I remember we had these bags of saltines. And sometimes I'd see David in his office, he got like six, six packages of saltines on his desk. He was always focused that we should learn other people's businesses better than they knew it themselves. So, it, you know, like we would ask for things in the, in the case of TV negotiations that, People would like, like no one asked for that. And I said, well, yeah, not like we will because that's like we know it's important. And you need that vision to imagine that something can be bigger and then that that sort of inspirational force to convince people to go through walls in order to make that happen. He understood the power of international. He knew how big it was to get at the Olympics. He traveled the world. He told me proudly that on one of his first trips to China, that they were fans of the Red Oxen, which, of course, is, is the Chicago Bulls. But they told him it was the Red Oxen. He was focused on what he called doing well by doing good. So each team should have a presence in the community that, you know, the the NBA should tackle hard issues. And, you know, so I, I remember I remember during the 1990s, I think Bill Clinton was president. And, you know, there was an effort made to in, to improve high school literacy. And so David set up a national NBA reading program to try to get kids use the NBA's promotional cloud and their sponsor base to try to improve reading levels. You know, he 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 got involved. And the last thing I would say is that he was a decisive leader. And many can have a problem with that. David didn't suffer fools or any number of people who felt, if not mistreated, not 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 well treated by David on different 
on you know in different moments. But I appreciated the fact that he would take a position, stand by it, and he'd make a decision. He made an uh, he made an unbelievable impact on all of us who had a chance to work with him. In my case, I got to work with him twice, which was super fun. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, what an amazing impact. And you know, he's he's obviously known not just in the states but but all over the world for the impact that he's that he's had and and the legacy that he's left in sport. Just want to switch modes now and um, kind of tap into your experience um, in media rights. Now, there's obviously always always a lot going on in the media rights space, um, depending on the sport, depending on the region. There are just so many different players involved in media rights now, like broadcast, cable, streaming via big tech companies. There's even talk of betting companies getting involved. Who's making the big moves at the moment from what you're seeing? And what does it, what does it mean for the makeup of the media rights deals going forward? So just some context. Since I got into the industry in the 1980s, the big story in the U.S., and this has impacted the rest of the world, the big story in the U.S. has been pay television. Cable TV channels like ESPN that grew up in the late, in the late 1970s. And those channels were uniquely powerful and um, influential because they have a dual revenue stream. They would collect they would collect fees from distribution companies that would carry their the signals. And then they and then because they were broadly distributed, they could then sell advertising. So the dual revenue stream made pay TV channels in the US like ESPN, TNT, TBS, Fox Sports One, made them dominant entities paying more and more money for sports rights, which because of the collective bargaining agreement of these leagues meant that in in general, the players would share half of that money. That meant more and more money for leagues, more and more money for players. The sports TV industry, the the sports industry in general has been like a growth stock my entire career. It's It's only sort of increased in value. And beginning in 2012, pay television subscriptions began to plateau. I remember vividly being in a meeting and we at ESPN and we were discussing Netflix. And Netflix, I think, was charging $6.99 to $7.99. And there was a difference of opinion about Netflix. Well, it was a movie service. But one of the people in the meeting said in a pretty sage moment, well, for a lot of people, Netflix is television. And like this shudder went through my body because Netflix was charging $7 a month for a TV experience that pay television was charging 10 times that. And if that was sustainable, that was going to change everything. And in beginning in 2012, pay television subscribers plateaued and they have been shrinking ever since. And they're now kind of in free fall. You know, the, you know, the distributors are dropping, you know, subs. Over 8% of their subs are, are disappearing. And that there's a compounding effect because as the percentage of subs that drops each year, that's a bigger percentage hitting off of a small, smaller number of pay TV subscribers. And those are the most valuable subs for the, the biggest source of revenue for all the pay TV networks who are in general paying the biggest uh, checks in sports. So if you're a sports TV league now, you have to be thinking, 
beyond just the pay TV companies, beyond just the broadcast networks. And so the company that's making the biggest splash outside that uh, recently is Amazon. Amazon uh, made an exclusive deal with the National Football League for 11 years. They, they moved up to start that deal earlier. They're carrying Thursday night football exclusively. They're, they're, they're initiating their own unique broadcast. They've demonstrated the ability to handle the concurrent, the concurrent fan base for Thursday night football on, on streaming, which some wondered whether or not that actually was possible. They're rolling in, they're doing like 29 cameras a game. You know, they're doing sort of practically NFL playoff type um, coverage every week. And that's for the NFL. And the NFL is by far the biggest entity in U.S. sports. So it remains to be seen how big Amazon's going to move outside that. But they made a big move. And that's, you know, uh, my friend Ed Desser, a former NBA colleague, you know, says, you know, that's, it, that's the seminal moment uh, for streaming and sports, certainly in the U.S. So I think you're going to see a movement towards more shared packages between linear and streaming in order to in order to afford the sports entities the growth that they're always going to be looking for but we're going to see um, a different world than what's gone on the last three or four decades that's that's for sure you mentioned the nfl being the biggest media beast in terms of broadcasting um, and and following you know their recent deal of a hundred billion dollars where to now for the NBA? I know you touched on streaming there, but do you think they can get close to that or are really the NFL too big? I believe the NFL is in its own is in its own league, so to speak. Um, certainly certainly within the US. It 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 commands such big audiences. It plays relatively few games. All of those are all of those are um are are broadcast either by Amazon or by national or or by national broadcasters. The NBA, however, I think is poised to see significant growth in its current deal with uh, ESPN, ABC, and TNT in the U.S. Now, a big factor for the NBA that's that that will that will um, um, be considered when its deals come up. Uh, in the middle of this decade is that there are also all these local rights that are available uh, through what we call in the U.S. regional sports networks. And the RSN business in the U.S. is in big trouble. So the NBA not only has to renew its national agreements, where I think it can see considerable growth, it also has to figure out with its teams if there's a sustainable basis for local deals. The NFL is all national with each game also being shown on home and away um, over the air television. So even though Amazon has the exclusive has the exclusive rights to Thursday night football, last Thursday's Philadelphia Houston game was broadcast as well simulcast on an over the air television station in Philadelphia and an over the air television station in Houston. They don't do any local, any any local um, network games. So the NBA has to figure that out. When you think about when you think about broadcast TV and pay TV, 
there's real there's not much if any appointment viewing other than sports now you know it used to be there'd be big tv shows that would be on thursday nights or saturday nights or monday nights almost all the top entertainment content is available on streaming which means it's practically available on demand so the only kind of programming that people are watching live and making an effort to watch live tends to be sports and that's expanding the value of those rights, especially for advertisers trying to reach people at different times. Just given um, what you've just just talked about and, um, you know, with with where things are heading, not just with the NBA, but with uh, the fragmentation of of media and the different challenges that that represents for everyone involved, what do you think this means for other sporting bodies, not just the, the giants, but, but even sporting bodies in Australia, for example? How do these organizations and rights holders need to position themselves for long-term growth? I suspect what's going to happen is that the biggest properties are going to continue to do well and everybody else is going to get squeezed or is going to have to figure out different ways of doing business. Now, one factor is that the streaming companies, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, they're international companies. Amazon's already buying some international sports rights, although Netflix had said originally, no way, no how, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll never be in sports. Netflix actually bid on the Formula One rights, and although they didn't get it, they were looking at the ATP tennis rights as well. So some of these big streaming companies will, will look at rights like Australian cricket or Australian uh, rules football or the rugby leagues. That said, and, and again, Australia operates differently than the U.S. in terms of who's bidding for rights and why. Uh, although some of these trends I talk about, the growth of streaming, the decline of traditional pay television, I believe that's going to be visited everywhere. There's going to be more and more of an emphasis, I believe, on direct-to-consumer and on establishing a first-party relationship with your fan base. So, you know, in the U.S., we've seen the growth of ESPN Plus is now into 23 million subs. And ESPN Plus is a product that sort of complements the ESPN linear channel, meaning that the, the content on ESPN Plus in general is unique and not on the ESPN linear channels. And ESPN Plus doesn't include National Football League games, doesn't include NBA games. So it's a separate, separate entity. But in the case of ESPN Plus, ESPN has name and credit card for the 23 million people who are subscribing. ESPN doesn't have name and credit card for its pay TV audience. That's controlled by the by the distributors. You're going to be rewarded if you're an AFL fan and you're at the you know you're you're at the game or watching on television or signing up for an email newsletter or whatever. Those efforts have been fairly small and dormant in sports because they didn't really have to do it. They just get getting big checks from pay TV. Uh, you know, or over the air. So that's going to change. I do believe that everybody, however, is going to have to work harder for their money. And if you have the big entities taking still bigger checks, there may be less money left for everybody else. So I do anticipate some form of reset in sports over the next five to 10 years where smaller properties 
may make less money. That may be less money for the players and teams. And there's also the development of new sports. Women's sports is really growing. Next summer is going to be the Women's World Cup. And the growth of women's soccer is really phenomenal. It's not covered much in the U.S., but, but women's cricket is also growing. Women's basketball is growing. And so sports will have to make room for new entries as well. So you're pretty much a believer that you reckon the fans will win no matter what broadcasting twists and turns take place? I do. However, the fans may have to pay more. When I was working at ESPN, customers would sign one to two year contracts with a distributor. Let's say Comcast served your house in Connecticut. You, in order to get ESPN, you have to sign like a one to two year deal and you were locked in. And you were locked in at a certain rate, and that meant you, if you were ESPN, you had you know, a lot of certainty about your sources of revenue. You can make decisions on program acquisition and what you were going to do. There was just less risk. Now, every service, including ESPN+, Plus, you can cancel month to month. And there's a phenomenon among younger viewers of swapping these services, turning them on and off. You want to watch the Game of Thrones prequel on HBO, that's great. But when that's over, maybe you're no longer subscribing to HBO Max. You want to watch foot college football on ESPN Plus, that's great. But maybe you're not interested in what they're doing in the spring. So there's going to be more and more pressure um, to figure out what fans value. And fans may find it more confusing to find the games they want. It may cost them more money. I think overall the offering will be better and more sophisticated. But, you know, for instance, a friend of mine who's a big Arsenal fan told me that he had to subscribe to seven different broadcast and streaming services in order to see all the games. Presumably that will change at some time, but that's not fan friendly. Yeah, that's really interesting, John. I think... um... I mean, this kind of ties into talking about the fans. Um, I'm, I'm interested to, to know where your investing strategy is at in terms of sports tech. You've, you've touched on it, but where do you see the biggest investment opportunities at the moment? Obviously, not just within the sports industry, but as we branch out into sports tech and media, it's a, it's a pretty broad landscape. So, I, I, you know, I talked about the growth of women's sports. I certainly, see, I certainly see opportunities there. My basic thesis is around metadata companies. And what I mean by that is companies that generate uh, tons of data about their audience or about the projects they do and thus know something about what's going on in the world that's in addition to their task at hand. So, for instance, one of my favorite companies is called WSC Sports, and they're based out of Israel, and they use computer vision, um, artificial intelligence, to create and distribute sports video highlights. Sports video highlights is work that had largely been manual before. Use the software, but basically you would, you would have loggers watching games and noting down highlights. And WSC does that work just with software. So their software knows who Kevin Durant is. Their software knows who Devin Booker is. And they can automatically create packages of highlights their software recognizes crowd noise as a factor in, in prioritizing highlights. 
It understands that if you show multiple replays of a play, it's probably pretty important. So WSC both creates the highlight and they can also distribute it simultaneously in both landscape and portrait to multiple endpoints. They can send the same clip to Google for the one box, to Snapchat in, um, in, um, in portrait for a Snapchat story. But what I find most fascinating about this company is because they have hundreds of rights holders all over the world. They know more about sports video highlight production, consumption than anybody else. They know what fans are, they know what highlights are getting produced on what players, what fans are watching, which highlights in different parts of the world at different times of the day. The NBA um, used them, the NBA commissioned them to do, um, to do uh, condensed game highlight packages that run on Google and YouTube. And they asked WSC what the ideal duration for those compilations should be. And WSC uh, did some calculations and determined that the ideal duration for a condensed game highlight to maximize viewership was nine and a half minutes. So if you go on Google tonight and just check out some condensed games of, of NBA games, you'll see that they're approximately nine and a half minutes. That's all based on metadata. Um, Warren mentioned one of the companies I'm involved with is called Whoop, which is a wearable that tracks um, that tracks your heartbeat, your sleeping, and it's um, it's become super popular both with um, with elite athletes and just with people who want to better understand their health. Whoop struck a deal to become the official wearable of the PGA Tour, and back when when, when COVID started, the tour was actually the first sport to reopen after COVID because it's an outdoor sport. The week, the week before the sport had its first tournament, one of the golfers, Nick Watney, didn't feel well. He got tested and was negative. But he looked at his WHOOP application and it showed that his respiratory rate was spiking. That's heavily unusual. The respiratory rate is a very, very static measure. Generally, doesn't move at all. He, he, he spoke to Rory McIlroy, who is, who is a, uh, also a Whoop user and investor, and Rory suggested that he get retested. This time, he tested positive for COVID. Within 36 hours, every PGA Tour player was wearing a Whoop. And that's because of the metadata that revealed a connection between respiratory rate and COVID, even though that wasn't part of any plan or understood. And so I find those opportunities fascinating. I look for companies that are doing that and that can take advantage of that kind of insight to build better products, make more money. So I see that as um, as as another big opportunity. The third thing I would say is that consumer behavior, especially among young fans, is just much, much different than what we grew up with. And there are gonna be opportunities flowing out of that. When I was growing up, media was scarce. You got a daily newspaper, it arrived at a certain time, you might listen to the radio, Sports Illustrated Magazine arrived once a week. 
sports on television was largely weekend afternoons only. Maybe there are some local games on during the week. Now we have such a glut of everything that the opposite is true. And if you're under 30, there's an almost unlimited supply of interesting short form video that's available from, for free from places like TikTok and Instagram and um, Snapchat and Twitter, et cetera, doesn't cost you any money that you could watch all day long. And that's active competition for sports, for entertainment, for everything. Didn't exist before. So it's a new world that we're operating in and different companies are going to find strategic advantage out of that. Now, when you're looking for those opportunities or those opportunities present, um, it sounds like it's data upon data um, to work out whether that's going to work long term, because you mentioned the kid versus the, the father or the mother, they all have different viewing. And I guess if you can nut that down as, as tight as you can, then you've got your niche. Is that as simple as weighing how you look at these? Well, it's also, it's also, and David Stern was masterful at this. It's also who are the people involved? Okay. Great companies almost always have brilliant, brilliant founders and CEOs because almost every small company is going to have to make a change, do something different, motivate people. And not everybody, not everybody can do that. Second, you know, obviously the size of the market that a company is in really matters as to, you know, I remember when the athletic got started, which was a, you know, a, an application featuring local sports coverage in the U S and they, they, um, branched out internationally. They were purchased by the New York times about a year ago. And I always thought it was a very good product, but I couldn't understand how a bunch of sports writers was going to become a venture capital product. And while there was a good return for the athletic, it wasn't necessarily on the level of what you would expect to see VC investment. So that's that's something that people have to keep in mind. There's a difference between having a company that can be profitable and a company that can generate the kind of returns that VCs expect when they get involved. And I don't I don't pass myself off as as some preeminent VC, but that's a factor when you're looking at companies leadership market. And then, as I said, you know, what's special about the company? And I tend to focus on data and use of data. All right. So we've talked a lot about the the opportunities in sport. What do you see as some of the biggest threats to the business of sport at the moment? I see just the the number of things that people can do. The internet, social media represents uh a bunch of enhancements for sports, but it's also frequently direct competition for sports. The price, I mentioned the price is likely going to go up through whatever happens in media deals. The price to go to these matches is going up. So there's a generation of people who get priced out. We've seen research that shows that if you're taken to a sporting event before you're 10 years old, you will likely become a fan for life. And that's the most beautiful thing to me about sports, certainly Certainly, how I feel. I, I suspect it's how you guys feel. Like, I'm just, you know, I'm interested in my teams, always have been and always will be. There's nothing like that else in entertainment. But that's also because I was introduced to sports when I was really young and it was, it was part of our family. So, 
as that gets chipped away at, I see a big threat. You know, so when when people are cutting the cord and not having pay television at home, that means they're not they don't they don't turn on their TV set. To the they even have a TV set to ESPN, or they're not watching baseball or basketball or football. And all of those people who aren't served, aren't engaged, are then sort of out of the system and they have other things to do. You know, there'll be a healthy discussion in the next five, 10 years about, say, what the metaverse will be. But there is, you know, if you look at Roblox for kids, if you look at Fortnite, there's a bunch of interesting interactive activities around that just weren't there. So I think heavy competition, um, social media, the price, and sports needs to focus on continuing to improve the experience to stay relevant to the next generation of fans. That's not a given. Well, our next segment is the Fast Five. Quick questions, quick answers. Uh, first one to kick off, the greatest sports mind or administrator you've worked with? Well, I, I think I... I I think you know the answer. For me, it was David Stern. And I would also mention Steve Bornstein at ESPN, who was a true visionary and helped help, help launch ESPN as the most profitable and most successful TV network, certainly the most successful sports TV network. All right. Next one from me. If you could invest in one athlete as an entity, who would you choose? It would be Jock Landale's teammate, Devin Booker, uh, who I think is a spectacular basketball player handsome, smart, um, says and does the right things, has a great work ethic, is young. He's on the cover of NBA 2K this year. Um, he's, he, he's one I would look out for. Biggest sporting moment you've been involved in professionally? You know, I, I think the growth of the, of the FIFA World Cup in 2010 and 2014 at ESPN was really exciting because I would describe ESPN's coverage of um, soccer in the World Cup as being pretty pedestrian prior to that, and it really improved. We had a bunch of innovations, including the men in blazers segments. So, so that was great. This is just sort of anecdotal to me because I've gotten to go to all the biggest sporting events in the world. But when I was at ESPN, uh, I um, I was involved in the acquisition of Crick Info, the, uh, the well-known cricket website, and I got to go to the cricket final in, uh, in uh, Mumbai in 2011 and then in Melbourne in 2015. And to me, the growth of international sport um, around the world and the ability to bring that to U.S. audiences, super exciting to me. Uh, in 2011, the... The, the cricket final between India and Sri Lanka took place on the same day as the college basketball final four, one of the biggest events in the U.S. sports. And I'll never forget, so proud of this, from 12 midnight to 12 noon, we had live coverage of the Cricket World Cup. And then once that was over, we flipped the home page to go to the final four. That was one of my proudest days at ESPN. That's really cool. Uh, flip side now. Your biggest pet hate in sport? What's the one thing that really annoys you? I I find so much of the TV coverage old fashioned. Again, I'm a big basketball fan. If you watch a a basketball game on television today, it's it's little different and in many ways not as good as the broadcasts when I was the head of broadcasting at the NBA. 
The replay technology is amazing, the quality of cameras, the high definition, but it's still basically two dudes in a booth with a sideline, with a sideline reporter. There's not much coverage of of the X's and O's as to how the game is played. There's not much personalization. It's fine, but I find that to be really frustrating and disappointing considering how good I think it could be. And with what we've talked about before, I think how good it's going to have to be to really sort of maintain interest going forward. Okay, so we get to the uh, bold prediction. Uh, Where to now for sport? Uh, My bold prediction is that the NBA will establish itself not just as the number two league in the U.S. behind the NFL, but as a number one individual sports league in the world uh, by the end of this decade. Bang. Wow. That's a massive call. I'd love, love to finish on that note, John. Mate, thank you so much for your time. We've really appreciated you coming on and, and just unpacking all of that history as well. I, I think it's really important to, um, to, to go through that in, in a bit of detail because it's had so much influence, not just on the US, but all of us um, you know, here in Australia and how, how sport has evolved. So thank you so much. And to everyone listening, remember there's a stack of great interviews lined up. So make sure you've subscribed to the podcast and join our community at www.thebigdeal.au. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Warren. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.